What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk again to Professor Dale C. Allison. You're most welcome, sir. Happy to be back. Good to see you, Paul. Great to see you. Uh, Dr. Dale Allison is an American New Testament scholar and historian of early Christianity and a Christian theologian. He is currently the Richard J. Dearborn Professor of New Testament Studies at Princeton Theological Seminary and an ordained elder in the Presbyterian Church USA. Dale last appeared on Blogging Theology in June last year when he discussed the historical Jesus. And I do recommend you see that if you haven't already. Today, he has kindly agreed to discuss uh, his extraordinary new book, which is entitled Encountering Mystery, Religious Experience in a Secular Age. And that's my copy there, which I've read from cover to cover. It's truly an absorbing read. It's almost like a novel. I don't mean it's fictional. I mean, it's so absorbing. <laughs> you want to read it through as, as quick as possible. So, Dale, could you begin by telling us what led you to write this extraordinary book? Well, I've really wanted to write this book for a long, long time. And I started to write it actually three decades ago. But at that point in time, I... Uh, was not a full-time academic. I uh, was working in a bookstore and teaching adjunct jobs, and I wanted to become a full-time professor somewhere. Mm. And I realized that if I wrote a book like this, I actually did write a book, and a few of its passages are, are now in, in this book. I did write a book, but I decided maybe if I published it then, I would never get a job. <laughs> because there's so much prejudice, I think uninformed prejudice about the things mm. that are talked about in this book. So mm. I waited until I, I'm a full professor. There yeah. are no more um, opportunities for advancement. I, I you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, the next thing that happens on my agenda is that I retire. So <clears throat> at this point, I really don't care about what other people <laughs> think. I don't have to please anybody except yep. please myself. And um to to put it more seriously i can be honest i can mm -hmm. uh, i think this book uh is an honest book and i i don't have to hide anything so i wanted to write it for mm -hmm. a long time and um this is in part because of my own experience i'm i'm not um a, a wannabe mystic uh, things just happened to me and they turned out mm. to be very important in my life and I didn't know how to bury them <clears throat> I didn't know how to ignore them so I I went looking in the literature for uh, other people who had had similar experiences so I've spent a long time cataloging experiences reading about cross-cultural religious experience doing the sort of thing that William James did a hundred years ago mm -hmm. and this book then is the the up, upshot of of that so so the it's not that this is a sudden interest of mine it's a lifelong interest right. but it's been mostly hidden because of the prejudices of uh, my academic guilt or okay. at least 
what I perceive to be a prejudice of my academic guild. Yes, and this is a theme that recurs in, in the book, actually. We'll come to that in a second. But you briefly alluded to this seminal work, uh, William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience. I mean, this really founded the whole field of, of uh, psychology, looking at religious experience. It says on the, on the back here, William James believed uh, individual religious experiences rather than the precepts of organized religion were the backbone of the world's spiritual life. And he, he was a Harvard University psychologist and philosopher, mm -hmm. uh, William, William James. Um, and this is still, you know, having read this myself, uh, very fresh, uh, full of the most extraordinarily vivid experiences that he called from, you know, a vast mm -hmm. array of sources, people he met and various accounts that he'd read, mostly, I think, American or, or Christian in origin, even if people turned Unitarian or whatever. Uh, but he wasn't very strong, say, on Muslim religious experiences. Or, no, or he wasn't. He wasn't. Um, I think that's a weakness of the book. I mean, perhaps not to blame him too much, as I've written over 100 years ago, perhaps. But it's still really worth reading. And I mean, how does your book differ from that? Is it an updated version or is it quite different? I, uh, I would like to flatter myself. I would like to think that I'm in uh, that I'm a descendant of James and that I'm he's in my genealogy. Right. But I think one of the things that distinguishes my book from his is that um, he's standing at the beginning of a discipline and he can't really do anything other than tell stories mm -hmm. and then analyze them. We're actually at the point where we've had a lot of work done on a lot of these um, religious experiences for want mm -hmm. of a better term. And we have statistics about lots of things. We have lots of cross-cultural data. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we have a lot more to work with uh, so things were messier then maybe than they are now. Some of the categories are clearer. Some mm. of the psychological triggers are clearer and, and things like that. Um, so if, if I look at my own genealogy, it's not just that William James is there, uh, at the beginning, but, uh, you're probably familiar with a, an Oxford professor named Alistair Hardy, who was, yeah. Uh, above all, a biologist, mm. uh, a very accomplished biologist, but mm. he at some point in the 1960s became very, very interested in uh, so-called religious experiences, mm -hmm. and he started collecting data mostly from the British public, yeah. and at that time, people would just send in letters. Today, they'd send in emails, but yeah. back then, they sent in letters, and he started categorizing things and sorting material, and then uh, from from then to now, we've simply learned more and more and more. So um, nothing can replace James and, and the varieties of re religious experience really is one of those books that may be timeless. Uh, yeah. It does not feel dated. It's just fresh. Actually, that's that's not just the subject matter. That's also William James. Almost everything he wrote is still worth reading. Yes. Almost everything yeah. he wrote is brilliant. He's yeah. just one of those mutants who's sort of ahead of the rest of us, right? Yeah. Uh, but I do think that I have a small advantage in that uh, I have a lot more material to work with uh, than, yeah. than he did. But well, wasn't he the brother or related to, to Henry James, the, the novelist? Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's a very accomplished family. So there must be some uh, genetic gift going on there. DNA going on there. Uh, yeah. Just, <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's a little, little. There's so, there's so much that this your book, uh, never mind William James, but your book is packed full of gems. Almost on every page is something of interest, and we we talk about the book for days. But, but everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Almost randomly, uh, you say on page 20, several times over the past 60 years, pollsters have asked Americans if they've ever had a religious or mystical experience. That being defined as a moment of religious or spiritual awakening. And they look at the numbers. We're not going to do a statistical analysis here. But back in 1962, yes was the answer. Uh, only 22% said yes, they'd had um, a, a mystical experience. 78% said no. 
uh, you, you know, very much a minority. And then in successive years, in 1976 and 94 and 20, 2006, 2009, there's been a huge increase. So that recently, in two, 2009, 49%, basically half the American population have had experiences. And no is 48. So now it's a majority have these experiences. And I mean, you say you don't want to read too much in statistics, but they do seem to indicate a, a really interesting trend. Is it, as you ask, that people are having more experiences or that it's become more socially acceptable to talk openly and to remember them and to be, you know, just to be more frank about them? So we did with a cultural shift rather than some kind of eruption of mysticism in the United yeah, States. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think it's the la the latter option. I don't mm -hmm. think we've had a eruption of of yeah. mysticism. I uh, think that the culture has changed. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not a sociologist, so I can't tell you why it, it's changing. We're not becoming more religious in the conventional sense. That is, more people aren't going to church or synagogue or mosque than used to go in the past. Yeah. But um, we've got this growing crowd of what. Uh, are called the the spiritual but not religious folks, mm, mm. and these folks are now uh, able to say yes to the pollsters. I've had these experiences where they didn't say that uh, in such large numbers back in 1960 or 1970. Now, what mm. this has to do with um, you know the the revolutionary time of the 1960s and and everything that came from that. I don't know. I'm not a sociologist. All I can tell you that I, is that I'm happy, and this is the most important thing. I'm happy that people can be a little more honest now than they were then, because I know that many of the people who used to say, no, I haven't had an experience, had had an experience, but they didn't want to say so, or maybe they were even, as sometimes happened, uh, happens hiding it from themselves that yeah. that happens too you know yeah. sometimes you'll ask or i'll ask people uh you know when, when i'm being a gadfly i'll say you know have you had any experience like this or like that mm -hmm. and so on and they'll say no and then if i leave them that's the answer but if i press on a little bit and say well you know blah blah mm -hmm. blah 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 and then mm -hmm. sometimes i'll get oh yeah well this did happen you know such and such did happen to me so there is still this uh, hesitancy on lots of, of people's parts to uh, just be honest about their, their own experience. And that's actually, I think, the first main point of this book is just to be honest. So mm. I think you can read most of this book and be happy even if you have no religious or theological orientation. Because mm. first of all, I'm simply saying people say these things happen to them. Isn't this interesting? And shouldn't we pay attention whatever the explanation for these things are? Mm -hmm. If you want to understand human beings, this is an important part of human beings. Just talk to them. A lot of them will say time and time again, this happened to me and it's the most important thing in my life. So a psychologist or sociologist, even if there's no belief in the transcendence, should say, well, that's interesting. What's that about? Shouldn't we look into this? And the problem has been that so much of this has been pathologized yes. uh, in modern times. And so yeah. people just feel inhibited. Yeah. And people who are trained sociologists or psychologists just often aren't interested because that's where the, the crazy people are and you don't exactly. want to go there. People are afraid to talk about these experiences because they, they'll be labeled crazy or misunderstood or, or be, as you say, labeled psychotic or the, the thing is medicalized, pathologized. Yes. And uh -huh. so there's every incentive in our culture not to speak about it for fear of ridicule or being misunderstood. So people keep it quiet until they come across people like yourself. And you've said on many occasions in your book, you know, at the end of a lecture or end of a class, people will, you know, where most people have gone, you'll get this <laughs> yeah, that will come up and sheepishly say, I, I had this experience. Uh, and almost like confessing it to you. And, and of course, you're just the person to hear about it. Yeah, that happens. That happens all the time. And um, I also think in this connection of an experience my daughter had, which is a very negative experience. You know, this mm. book isn't all sweetness and light. There are also very negative religious, so-called religious experiences. My daughter had this very creepy, overwhelming experience um, once. And uh, it was so horrible that she told me later on she had uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome for 10 years. She was quite serious about this. But oh. what I remember is that the morning after it happened, she woke up and she came to me. And because she knows who I am and that I'm open-minded, she recounted the event to me. 
And then what I remember most vividly is she said, but dad, you can't tell anyone because they'll think I'm crazy. Those are almost her exact words. Uh, they, you know, they were burned on my mind. This happened to her. She didn't make it up. It's at least subjectively real. And why is it that she can't talk about this? Well, well what happened, without breaking any confidences, or maybe you, you can't say, but what <laughs> what happened to her? I mean, it sounds awful, but what what happened? So she was awakened in the night, and she was surrounded by um, these shadowy, amorphous. Uh, threatening figures and she felt as though they hated her and mm. they were making fun of her and and so on and she didn't she didn't think that it was a dream she still to thinks this to this day thinks that it was real now she's not quite sure what that means but no. she doesn't think it was a just pure projection of her own mind she thinks she was encountering something and that it was not pleasant it was threatening and ugly and so on. If this had happened in another place and time, I am certain that uh, somebody would have said, oh, well, I saw demons or, mm -hmm. you know, Satan appeared to me, that sort of thing. But mm -hmm. she was raised in my household and she knows that things are messed up and, mm -hmm. you know, we don't always have clear categories for things. So she didn't say demons. She just said shadow figures right mm -hmm. so so that's what that was all about and of course she did what i did after i had my experiences i read looking for parallels after her experience she went looking for parallels and she's found uh passages in many books now which talk of people having this experience mm -hmm. i don't know what it is i have no explanation for it what i'm most concerned about is that we don't pathologize it because she's perfectly healthy She's just a she's a healthy person. There's nothing wrong with her mentally. It's really stupid to say, you know, this 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 is a, a manifestation of her mental pathology because it just just isn't. Mm -hmm. uh, it might be some transient electrical something in her brain, but there's nothing wrong with her psychologically. That's just not the way to go here. No. I mean, in your book, you recount many extraordinary stories of people who've experienced supernatural events, angels, encounters with deceased loved ones, surprisingly common, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, and some, as you say, were clearly felt of as malevolent. But what struck me is, you, you note the surprising indifference or even scepticism shown by many Christian priests, ministers, pastors, uh, whom one might have expected to offer a sympathetic ear. But they don't very often. Why is this? I mean, of all people, the religious professionals, you'd expect them to be open to this kind of phenomenon. Ah, yes. Well, as it says in the Gospels, Jesus X, Y, Z. But yeah. they don't. What, so I don't quite understand this, this kind of disconnect. So here's my amateur um, attempt to explain that. I think there are at least two um, streams here that combine to create this attitude. So... The first thing you have to remember is that early Protestants were anti-Catholic. Mm. They were as much as anything anti-Catholic. That's their mm. identity. And Catholic tradition, especially in the Middle Ages, is simply full of miracle stories. Yes. And those miracle stories were understood to authenticate Catholic doctrine. So mm. the only way the Protestants could deal with this stuff, or the only thing that came to their mind, was mm. to say these events did not happen. And so the Protestant reformers are actually the first rationalists. They're the mm. first people to look at miracle stories and say, well, that's a legend or somebody misperceived or, you know, there's a mental issue here or, you know, maybe demons were deceiving them. But but, you know, it's it, 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 there's no positive spin put on these things. Everything is an attempt to dismiss them. And mm. that then lives on, especially in the reform Protestant tradition. Um, and, and eventuates in something called cessationism, which yeah. is the belief that the only miracles that ever took place are in the Bible in and the all the others are bogus. Yeah. Right? As soon as the apostles died, that was it, the end of the miracles. Yeah, That's right. And you can actually find a couple of passages in Shakespeare where he refers to, you know, the age of miracles is past. So um, it becomes a really well-known, far-flung uh, mm -hmm. Protestant uh, idea. So, so that's the first thing that feeds into this. Um, you know, I'm a Presbyterian, at least on paper, and the tradition is no miracles. Just I, I teach at um, uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, one of our old famous professors 
late 19th, early 20th century was a man named B.B. Warfield. He oh, wrote yeah. a book on miracles and it was a cessationist tract. Yeah. There yeah. are no miracles. Once there are, there may be two places in that book where he says, well, I can't explain it, but I know it wasn't God or anything, you know, <laughs> like that. So they, they're all, all gone. The second thing is this. I think that Christian theologians and then pastors trained at seminaries are uh, descendants from the 19th century. And during the 19th century, Christians lost the scientific mm. battles over the Bible. The, the experts decided the world was not, you know, just a few thousand years old, but mm. billions of, of years old. They decided that there probably wasn't uh, the sort of flood that the Bible, a worldwide flood, the geological evidence was problematic. And then they had evolutionary theory, which raised questions about Adam and Eve. So I, I think that having suffered these losses, that mm. having been on the wrong side of history several times, they simply learned their lesson and said, well, we're just going on along with whatever the scientists say. Mm. And by the way, I think that's why you get somebody like Rudolf Bultmann, who's an existentialist, nice. and faith really gets reduced to this inner decision, but it has nothing to do with history or science or the world. We just I, leave that to the spiritually anti-miracle, isn't he? I mean, yes, he says it, yes. It's really, at the paraphrase, it says in the, in the days of the electric light bulb and you know <laughs> high technology, then how can we believe in these supernatural miraculous claims? They clearly, you know, they don't, they don't exist for us anymore. Yeah. So Bulbon's quite explicit. He'll talk about the rational order of science, and mm. that's what he believes and he just says as a what he calls modern man i can't mm. do anything else right mm. so uh I, I think he's wrong about that but he is uh, a symptom or a symbol of this tradition we've lost to science so often that we're just not going to resist it anymore mm. and if we think modern science says that we're material beings or that miracles don't happen, then we just have to go along and then we'll reinterpret our texts, you know, in an existential fashion or whatever, in yeah. some way that won't contradict what the scientists uh, have been or or history teaches us. I mean, yes. it, it, for, for him, whether or not Jesus actually died and rose again from the dead physically was irrelevant. For him, it was all faith. It's kind of a Lutheran kind of pietistic thing. And yeah. Perish that it should be actually rooted in historical events that might be <laughs> disproven by someone. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it's very odd. Bultmann was a historian of early Christianity, but when it comes to Jesus, he just says, "Well, I think Jesus existed and he died, and that's all I need to know." Yeah. Uh, you know, that's it. Very so, safe. Uh, yeah. Very safe. Who's going to disagree with that? But of course, today you get the mysticists, of course, who <laughs> deny even that. But anyway. Yeah, but but the point here, the point is, is that he's representative of. The, the Christian thinkers and pastors who simply feel intimidated, I would say, by what they perceive to be a universal scientific consensus, which cancels uh, some of the things I'm talking about in, in my book, right? Mm, yeah. But, and, th and this is where the extraordinary turn of events, because you discuss phenomena uh, which are not explicitly religious, but which seem to break up this hard materialist zeitgeist that seems to have infected uh, the halls of a academy and the science. For example, uh, I mean, there's so many examples, just almost random, near-death experiences. Okay, I'm, I'm impressed with these. Not, not, I'm not impressed with the, the usual story, uh, you know, I nearly died, I saw a light, and well, you know, life review. That is okay. <laughs> what, what impresses me is when you get this extraordinary um, verified accounts of people born blind, okay, people who can't see and have or never seen who have a near-death experience uh, and during that they have an out-of-body experience and they actually see and observe what's going on around them accurately reporting what they've seen and heard uh, later on so obviously they recover they don't die obviously they wouldn't be around to tell us and this is extraordinary because it suggests a, a very non-materialist shall we say gently non-materialist understanding of the human consciousness that impresses me because it's hard it's empirical and it's totally unexpected. Yes, uh, and you, you are right. There are such cases. There are also cases that are very similar of people who have never been able to hear, and uh -huh. they will report that they've also heard things for the first time, which yes. is very strange. Now, in addition yeah. to those two sorts of cases, in the book I have, I don't know, three or four pages where I just quote 
medical people who are on the scene, surgeons, doctors, mm -hmm. emergency personnel, nurses, and so on, who will talk to somebody after that person was unconscious, maybe during surgery or in some other way. And that person will then report that, oh, when I was out, I saw this mm. or I heard that. And it turns out that their perceptions were correct. And there's no real conventional explanation mm. <clears throat> for what happened. And the question I have in the book is, how many testimonies like this does it take yes. before we decide <laughs> there really is something here? Yes. There is now a book with literally hundreds. These are cases not where people say, well, I was in surgery and I saw such and such. These are cases where the person wakes up, reports such and such, and then a medical person says, oh yeah, I was there, you were unconscious, and you're reporting exactly what happened. You're reporting odd details that you couldn't have guessed or you shouldn't have seen. Uh, I have no explanation for this. So when we get person after person, expert after expert after expert saying, I can't explain this, then maybe we're dealing with something that's unexplainable within our current, you know, scientific reductionistic world. Yeah. So I'm actually with you on this. I, you know, you have to be careful here with words like proof, but I think there are elements of these um, near-death experiences that push against what we perceive to be the dominant uh, secular, materialistic, yeah. reductionistic paradigm. I, th I think they are in, there. In your book, you do actually offer, uh, you, you actually seek out alternative explanations in accordance with the standard materialist conventional explanations you know what was it lack of oxygen was it this you know, standard to try to, to see if these explanations do offer a sufficient uh rationale for these and you find the more wanting that they all fall short quite radically from an adequate explanation for this extraordinary phenomena and that's one of the the characteristics of, of uh th this book encountering uh mystery is your uh, what I see is your intellectual integrity. You, this is not a prop. This is not a work of propaganda. That, uh, <laughs> although clearly you you have uh, your views, but they don't. I don't think they overwhelm the evidence. You, you you're quite open to alternative explanations when they are plausible. So you quote you quote some uh, you know ca cases of fairly insane people who have we weird ideas. You know clearly that this is this is not indicative of anything extraordinary other than their own insanity to use clinical language. But there are. <laughs> <laughs> not very pc language either um you, you mentioned one guy he felt he was an, he was possessed by a tree or something towards the end oh, oh yes uh -huh. yeah, yeah and i thought but you gave that as an example of something that was clearly not right you know in terms of his mental uh capabilities um so you are aware of of, of more prosaic explanations but nevertheless there are other phenomena which clearly defy this kind of conventional explanation and so I, I your methodology is is very much in the tradition of william james i think in that it, it is scientific or scholarly i think uh i hope so also even though i'm a christian and even though this is published by erdman's which is a christian publisher so it's you know going to be read uh by by a christian audience i suppose mm. in in great degree it's not a book of theology and it's not apologetics i really am trying to as best i can to, to understand what, what is going on. And I even at points say, well, if this particular kind of experience is consistent with what my tradition teaches, it, it's also consistent, consistent with other traditions and here's how they might deal with it or yes. how people within it have. So again, I'm not trying to push um, um, a, a Christian agenda here. I, yes. I, it does come up at points and I certainly speak as a Christian, but, um, it's not Christian theology. And the truth is that while I think many of these experiences push us towards um, some sort of belief in a transcendent reality, I don't think that at least the experiences in this book uh, nominate a certain religious tradition as the best one. Right. That, that, that is true. You, you, but but uh, I, I notice the absence. If there is a, crit a critical kind of review of it, uh, the absence of other religious testimonies. And the same with William James in his book, Religious Experience. There's almost, not completely, but almost like, in, in Muslim tradition, you know, in Sufi, there's obviously the great mystical tradition of Islam, Sufism. Uh, we've been lots of phenomena and experiences and mysticism is all there 
in abundance but a lot of that might be in arabic or persian but there's there's rumi you know but well, that's largely absent from me but i'm not critic i'm just saying that you are writing as a christian theologian for a christian publisher for an american audience inevitably but there, there is a you know same with william james as well a whole wealth of literature that was not actually utilized arguably so so, so certainly um uh, i need to be humble uh, i'm working with the material that i know yes but right so I'm not an expert on uh, on the Sufis. However, in the chapter where I talk about divine love, I do quote at length the Sufi testimony, and then I go on and I look at um, Zen Buddhist testimonies, and I ask, are these referring to the same thing and giving it different interpretations? So I'm keenly aware uh, of the reality of cross-cultural experience and all the problems that this raises for, you know, comparative religion and so on. But again, um, I have to be, um, I have to be who I am yeah. and I have to work with the materials that, that I know best. And for me, uh, I, you know, I grew up in the West, I grew up in the Christian tradition mm. and I know Christianity, uh, better than I know, of anything course. else and i know the christian mystics better than i know the other mystics and so on yes uh, but i i will also say that i think maybe this is less of a defect than it might appear because the book is also full of secular people who mm. do not belong to any religious tradition mm. and my tendency is to think if these people are having these experiences too mm then they probably are in some way common to the different traditions, right? Which they, which they are. And, and yes, they are. Now, yeah. and, and that's part of the book too. I'm trying to uh, think in large universal terms, yeah. but you could also write a book, it would be really interesting, on just Sufi religious experience and ask what's unique about this? Why is it unique? What's going on? What does it tell us? Yeah. You could probably, I'm sure, do the same thing with Zen Buddhists or Tibetan Buddhists. Jairism, but I, yeah, again, couples. that's not yeah. my, no. you know, I, I'm primarily a first century historian at the end of the day. And by the way, Paul, you keep calling me a, a, a Christian theologian. I uh, Maybe I'm an amateur theologian, but I'm a professional yeah. historian, oh. right? Well, okay, I, I'm not going to agree, but, but okay. I, I, <laughs> well, I, 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 by, by saying that, I'm, it's not a criticism, I'm just trying to clarify your, your expertise, which I think certainly is in Christianity, obviously. But but um, an, another, not so much criticism, but another, if I was writing a book review, I might, I might say this. Um, I, I wish you'd gone further sometime. I, I, I by the way, I, I share your worldview, disclaimer. I, I, I believe that there's a divine realm, an unseen realm. I believe huh. the malevolent forces are objectively real as well as the angelic forces i believe our soul uh, our spirit uh, survives bodily death um and so on i, I we we, we inhabit that same worldview but that's my point i wish you'd sometimes gone further for example um one of, one of the things that captivates us in the west is darwinian evolution okay the idea that we as a species human humankind are products of blind evolution we, we can materially analyze where we came from we were ascended from not apes but whatever the precursors were of human uh -huh. beings uh, and 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 that's what we are we're basically uh, you know richard dawkins might say we're just self-replicating dna machines and but the implication of what you're saying is that this is false because we have to want to, to use language of religion souls we have a divine spark we we have spirit a spiritual the ruh the this spirit within us in the in the hebrew slash, slash arabic sense and 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 th this transcends our, our bodies where our, our consciousness is not just an epiphenomena of our brains it has some kind of existence that transcends now what this means is that darwin the darwinian explanation of our origins is at best radically inadequate to understanding who we are as human uh -huh. beings that's what i'm trying to say there's something about us which is simply not the product of material processes and i wish you had gone that made that connection because it does challenge the darwinian paradigm from a very unusual perspective i would argue uh so i agree with everything you said all i can say is that uh the book is a modest introduction to the topic and i think i so i actually agree i agree with your world view but i was raised in another world view that is 
uh, I did go to church and my father believed the things that you just enunciated, but I went to school and I went to secular school and I yeah. never got any of that. In fact, I learned to think about everything from a secular point of view. Mm -hmm. I was taught to learn about history and human beings and science and everything from a sort of reductionistic standpoint. So given how I was educated, this book is very radical as it is, right? It's very radical as it is. And it's intended to be a sort of uh, softball, not a hard, you know, not a hard pitch, right? Mm -hmm. And look, so so I, I said earlier that that one of the goals here is not to pathologize, mm -hmm. all right? The other goal is simply to report and say, we really should know what's going on for the same reason yeah. you want to know what's going on today with politics or you yeah. know the world. Uh, this is going on and we should pay attention to it. Those were actually my two chief goals. Yeah. Report on all this stuff. Don't pathologize it. The third goal, which was beneath those two, was to push back and say, yeah, I think these things are telling us there's a bigger and wider world out there. Mm -hmm. But that's not the chief goal. So, you know, maybe you should be asking me to write a sequel or someone yes, else. Yes. <laughs> I'd love to, to continue the trajectory for you softballed it, but the, the implications of what you are saying, this worldview, are actually really radical. They threaten the ruling paradigm in the West. I'm not, you're some iconoclast. I don't mean to point, paint you as iconoclast, but they, they do offer an alternative paradigm, to put it politely, uh, which is configured around a very different set of presuppositions, which I think is actually more informed of the wealth of empirical data that have now, uh, data that have now come to light. And uh, I'll give you just one more example. I mean, we've gone for hours, but there's a particularly fascinating example of this very kind of, um, non-religious, non-spiritual phenomena that has been noticed uh, about those people who are approaching death, but which has profound philosophical and spiritual and theological implications. Were we brave enough to write the second volume or all of us to <laughs> reflect on what this means? The implications of this are really radical. If I may, uh, on page 103 of your book, um, obviously uh, this book, Encountering Mystery, um, you refer to... Um, individuals who at the very end of their lives just before they they pass and you you say hippocrates cicero plutarch and galen as well as these are ancient figures as well as doctors in the 18th and 19th centuries reported cases of the confused or cognitively inert becoming shortly before death perfectly lucid and this is the key point william monk in a book published in 1887 remarked that lucidity before death, quote, has impressed and surprised mankind from the earliest ages. And then you go on. The phenomena, however, barely shows up in the medical literature of the 20th century, which is extraordinary. It seems to have begun largely forgotten until 2009. And then you talk about you cite a, a German study. And that, I'm going to bypass that and just come to a specific case which you illustrate concerning um, uh, an American experience, which really illustrates this extraordinary phenomenon, which is widely attested throughout history, it seems. Uh, to illustrate, you say, Scott Haig, the well-known medical columnist and clinical professor of orthopedic surgery at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, obviously in America, had a patient, David, whose lung cancer, as so often happens, had metastasized to his brain. In other words, it moved into a secondary area from his lungs into his brain. That's what medicine, I have to look this word up, by the way. That's what <laughs> it means. I'm no doctor. David's speech as a result was slurred. Then he became incoherent. Then he could no longer move. He eventually became wholly unresponsive. According to Professor Haig, he showed, quote, no expression, no response to anything we did to him. As far as I could tell, he said, he was just not there, end quote. A scan revealed that cancer had eaten most of his brain. And this is a horrific description. Cancer had eaten away most of his brain. And yet, an hour before his death, you write, and after he had already begun to breathe irregularly, he awakened. He smiled, spoke clearly to his gathered family and held their hands. Only then did he slip away. The attending nurse opined that it was like a miracle, she said. 
And this was Professor Haig's verdict. So this is a scientist, really, a medical professional, saying it wasn't David's brain that woke him up to say goodbye that Friday. His brain had already been destroyed. Tumor metastasis, tumor metastases don't simply occupy space and press on things, leaving a whole brain. The metastases actually replace tissue. This is the cancer actually replaces the tissue. Yeah. Where that gray stuff grows, the brain is simply just not there, unquote. Uh, and then he goes, and then you go on to talk about uh, Alzheimer's patients uh, can exhibit terminal lucidity as well. I won't go into it. It's absolutely fascinating, uh, page 104. So here we have, I mean, it's not religious, nothing to do with metaphysics, theology, nothing to do with churches. I mean, <laughs> You know, I'm laboring the point here because here we have actual empirical observed phenomena that, that are very commonly observed. And now in the literature, the peer reviewed academic literature is now being cited by reliable people, by professors, mm -hmm. uh, you know, et cetera. Saying that people who basically don't have brains in their heads anymore are being eaten away by cancer suddenly wake up perfectly lucid, have conversations with their loved ones, hold their hands and then gently pass away. What is going on there, do you think? But I don't so I don't know what's going on, and I don't understand the relationship between the brain and the self. I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a neuroscientist. All I can say is the sort of easy reductionism that I was taught in college can't explain this. This is not what they expect, but no. it's a real phenomenon. So it shows you that the self or the mind is not exactly what we think it is. That is the constricted idea that, you know, we understand what's going on. And uh, when we do autopsies, we figure out how the brain works and all the rest of it. That's just not uh, the final answer, right? There's something more going on here. I, I noticed maybe just in a footnote, but I noticed at some point that there was an old German theologian writing uh, um, over a hundred years ago, who said, you know, maybe this is evidence for the existence of the soul. I think it is evidence for something that we certainly don't understand or doesn't fit our categories at, at the moment. Also, I don't know if I talked about it in this book, but there is now a, a literature, a scientific literature on a handful of cases of people who are, are, are victims of, um, you know the cerebral fluid that that fills up and pushes their 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 brain to the outside of the 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 inner skull, uh, but also in many cases destroys uh, much of the brain tissue. And a few, you know, most of the time when people have this condition, they are um, they don't live long or they're severely uh, <laughs> severely challenged. But there are cases of people who have led pretty normal lives and they don't seem to have much in their heads except water now that doesn't make any sense it makes no sense at all right well, let me change you do you quote this german theologian for 100 years ago said this was evidence for the soul and i'm thinking yeah obviously and you but you won't, you won't call a spade i'm i'm pushing back now why did you call a spade a spade of course it's evidence for the soul what else would it be i mean you can call it spirit or oh, whatever okay, I mean, okay. There's no other category for it, is there, in our lexicon to describe such an entity, surely? Okay, so so yeah, that's the that's the term we're going to fall back on, soul or spirit. But then if you push me, I really have to admit that I don't understand what a soul or, or spirit is. I don't know if it's some kind of non-material thing. I don't know if it's some sort of weird matter. I, have, mm. I, I don't know whether it's some kind of force field. I, I have no idea what, what I'm doing. What I do think is that there is a lot of evidence now that bodily death is not the death of us mm. and that somehow the self or important parts of the self mm. can exist uh, beyond this physical frame, which right. of course is what, you know, my tradition and, you know, ha has, has always thought anyway. But uh, I'm trying to be as careful as possible 
because I don't want to give the impression that I understand. So I do use, maybe I don't use it much in this book, I do use in my own thought and conversation, I use words like spirit and soul, but they can easily be deconstructed. And, you know, I'm somebody, and I, I've said this in the book, I really think that much of what goes on is a genuine mystery and that I don't really understand a lot of things. So um, I don't really have a clear idea of myself, but I'm happy to say, kind of calling up Plato, uh, you know, the soul or something like it, you know, what people have meant by soul or something like it. So maybe I'm just being unduly cautious. No, I, 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 I'm, I'm not going to really... No, I'm being slightly tongue in cheek. I mean, I understand the the you're being um, uh, uh, reticent. You don't want to make uh, a grandiose claims that that would cite they might backfire with an audience who might think mm, you're just an apologist yeah. for Christianity. Yeah, you're using chaste language to give it more uh, scholarly uh, uh, appearance. And I, I think I understand the credibility of that. That that makes sense. Um, there's something to tell us about something else. These are the, you mentioned in your book, the, the archives of scientists' transcendental experiences <laughs> or taste, T A S T E, um, which I will link to in the description below, by the way, folks, because tell us about these archives. Well, why did you mention them? Well, so I, I think this is um, interesting and sad at the same time. Mm. So the experiences that I talk about in this book are common. And they transcend uh, religious divisions, and they also happen to people who aren't religious. So what happens to you if you are a scientist and you are at some secular institution and then you have some remarkable experience? You run into the love of God, for example, or you think that demons have attacked you, uh, or you've seen a, a dead person, or you have a mystic rapture. What do you do? Well, this is an online safe site yes. for scientists because they cannot, they feel, tell the people around them, the people they work with every day about what's happened to them. So this site was created so that scientists, and these are accredited scientists yeah. at academic yeah. institutions, could yeah. share what they uh, had experienced and not worry about the, the fallout. This goes back to, to what I said earlier, that is, in the 1990s, I wanted to write a book like this. I actually did write a book somewhat like this, and then mm -hmm. I never published it because I, was a, I, I wanted to be hired. And I knew that people who were you know, in a position to hire me might not go for this. Wow. So that's what's happening with these scientists. They, they can't be honest and just chat with the people around them. So they write out their experiences and they upload it to this site. So that's that's what it is. And so these are scientists who are mystics and having the experiences that many religious people report, but they can't they can't talk to the people around them. That, that's so that's crazy. what that is. And and as I said, that's that's very interesting. First of all, that these people in these secular environments are still having these experiences. But mm. it's also ad, sad because. They can't be honest. Exactly. Uh, and and, so, and the, the irony here is the great irony of this, of course, science presents itself, and I'm not saying it isn't, but it presents itself as a fearless search for truth, the, the truth that's out there, and that we're untrammeled by dogma. And yet the, these very self people can't actually speak openly about the truth of their experiences for fear of whatever. Um, so there's a great irony in all this. Yeah, so, so the fear is that the experience won't be taken seriously, or if it's taken seriously, it will be pathologized. No. So, um, yeah, let's have, a, let's have a safe space for us, no, scientific yeah. mystics. Yeah, so this is called TASTE. This is the acronym. Uh, yeah. The Archives of Scientists' Transcendental Experiences are linked to uh, in the description below. Um, just to come back to this, this point about our, our materialist culture and, and skeptical worldview and the, the seemingly inexorable decline in formal religious practice. Now, just you, you, might, you may or may not be aware, just a few weeks ago, the 2021 census was uh, published in the United Kingdom, uh, and which included a lot about people's religious views and allegiances. And for the first time in British English history, uh, Chris Christian adherence is now a minority in, 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 in England. Um, and there's been a huge increase. This is since the, the census before that in 2011, by the way, it's in a 10 year period. There has been an increase in those declaring they have no religion, quote unquote, from a quarter of the population to 37.5%. That's a huge increase in no religion. 
in England and Wales. Uh, Scotland has a different sense of delay because of COVID. That's another story. Oh. Um, now, what's interesting uh, about this, and I, I, this a fascinating lecture by Professor uh, Linda uh, uh, Woodhead, who is a professor of sociology and uh, theology at King's College in London. And uh, she's coming on blogging theology, God willing, uh, soon to talk about the Christian statistics and all this. Is that the people who say they're not religious. And I remember someone tweeted about this. Said, yeah, look at the atheism is rising in Britain. Look at all these atheists now, like a third of the population. I said, no, 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 no. They're not atheists. And, and Linda, uh, the professor herself, has said this. These people, the, the no religions, um, are experiencing a, a, a resurgence of paganism, of belief in angels, in the occult, um, in uh, you know obsession with uh, all sorts of angels and whatnot. These aren't. Again, back to Richard Dawkins, who's my favorite go-to guy for anything. These are not hardcore materialists at all, these mm -hmm. non-religious. What they've done is they disengage from formal religious allegiance to the Church of England or the Roman Catholic Church or the Methodist Church. But they are, as you put it earlier, they're not religious, they're spiritual, and they are very spiritual. So it seems to be this kind of popularist upsurge of what I think is religi religiosity, actually, but it's not called that. It's called spirituality. In the face of a, a, a uh, the increasing decline of Christianity as a formal faith in Britain, um, and this is a really weird because we're supposed to be living in a secular society. So why is not all belief in in decline? But it's not. Uh, only certain kinds of formal belief are in decline. Yeah. Well, so you should have a sociologist on to talk about this. She's coming on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, good. But you see, in my experience. People who say they are not religious, they really often are, or you're right. I, I mean, I know someone fairly well who's a practicing witch, yeah. right? And she's completely alienated from the Roman Catholicism of her youth, but mm. she is into magic and spirits and believes all sorts of things that I think that are too weird for me, right? Mm. Uh, so, so this is the case. The other thing that's interesting about these polls uh, and, and I am not familiar with this poll. I haven't seen it. And I don't know how deep they dig into to these questions. But mm. I know people who will say they don't believe in God. But if you sit down and have a conversation with them, what they're really saying is, I don't believe in a man on a throne. Yeah. Right. Because that's what Christians believe. I believe in such and such. Yeah. And, and, and what they're actually saying fits some christian theologians what they think right it, you know it's it's a different yeah. sort of thing so uh people you always have to dig deep and and talk to people and that's the one of the reasons polls can be misleading yes. right or they can just be the beginning for a conversation mm -hmm. but if you ask people uh do you believe in god uh i don't think the answer is reliable unless you can actually sit down and say well what do you mean by the word god yes, and yes. what is your alternative is your alternative that i believe in nothing at all or mm. have do you have some sort of functional substitute for mm. for this or a different sort of of deity right mm -hmm. so uh you're right and i i don't know um how to explain the decline of institutions. Um, I personally um, am, am persuaded that it's not a good thing in the long run. I don't think the world's going to be a better place if we have no organized religion at all. But um, what, what's driving this, uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, maybe. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, the consolation, I mean, the bigger picture here is we, we're often in, in our very Eurocentric or American-centric perspective on the world, is that most of the world is not uh, experiencing this. You know, religion is booming in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, in South America, in China, uh, you name it. People, faith is really important. It's only seemingly in Western Europe, not even Eastern Europe, think of Poland or Hungary, let alone Russia, um, uh, and, and parts of America where um, where religion is still very strong, but other parts of America is not. So it's kind of a like Western Europe slash Eastern Western seaboard of America type phenomena rather than global phenomena. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about that. But again, that's a, an issue for sociologists. You'll know that there's been, I'm sure you know, there's been a huge discussion since the 1960s about the topic of secularization and how it's defined and whether, uh, you know, they've got things right and whether they need to rethink things and, and, and all the rest of it. But I'm, I'm not an expert in, in those things.
No, Peter Berger, of course, the famous American sociologist, I think he was at uh, Boston University, he was one of the great proponents of secular, the secularization thesis, it was called in the 50s. Uh, he sadly passed away recently, but he said before he passed away that he was completely wrong. Yeah, that. yeah, he did. He, he repented. He, re he started <laughs> repenting on that in the 1990s. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, he was right. he was completely wrong about about that, and he was also wrong in part because he did he did sort of confuse his trajectory of history with world history, and it just it just doesn't work at all, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, I think my last question really is uh, about uh, this book's reception, encountering mystery, religious experience in a secular age. How has it been re been received by? colleagues academic colleagues by religious leaders and by the wider media well what kind of uh, responses have been so they have been favorable so far oh. my suspicion is that um i've done enough work that is not like this <laughs> to have to have won enough i don't know respect that if people uh, think I've gone over the bin. They won't tell me to my face. They'll just talk about me behind my back. So I'm never going to know about that. But the reception so far has been um, surprisingly positive. Um, I have a, a meeting with my own faculty here in February where they're going to talk about this book. So I'll find out then what my colleagues literally next door think of this. I really don't know so far. Yes, because you you were quite harsh on not your your immediate faculty colleagues, but uh, other uh, colleagues uh, in the world of theology and biblical studies, uh, biblical scholars in in simply not taking these religious experiences seriously and being quite quite aloof or dismissive of them. Well, look, I was trained. I, I was trained not to take these seriously. That is. I read David Friedrich Strauss when I was young. I read Rudolf Bultmann when I was young. Uh, the, all the historians of Jesus that I learned from mm. either said these don't happen or they taught by example that you just don't pay attention to them. You you know, you worry about other other things. And I actually had one professor who told me just don't go there. Don't 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 do this because you want to be respected you want people to read you and uh, pay attention to you and if you talk about these things that you're interested in uh you'll lose your audience um, so, so I've, I've had an audience and i i don't think i'm going to lose it lose it no. now but but it's also the case that things as you indicated right at the beginning seem to be changing Mm. Uh, there are more people in the culture who open are open-minded. I think there are more people behind closed doors who mm. are open to the sort of thing that I'm saying that you might suspect. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is a uh, a slow change in the culture. Maybe the tectonic plates are moving a little bit slowly, but they are moving. And then we're not stuck in the 1950s. We're, we're, we are moving into a, hopefully a, a, a different way of seeing things in the future. And the, the very, very last question is, what are, what are you working on now, if anything? What, what books, projects do you have in the pipeline? I'm mostly, I mostly threw another book on Jesus. Uh, you know, I keep trying to quit, but I, I still have ideas and I, I can't stop. And when I finish this this Jesus book, I really don't know what I'm going to do. I have thought of writing, I seriously have thought of writing a sort of sequel where I go a little further and ask questions about worldview and so on. Yes. Uh, if you this must, book, you must, you must, I, I beg you, do write this sequel. If this book wins, uh, you know, some accolades. And if I hear enough people like you, then I, I might go that direction. But um, I don't know. I don't know for sure. All I know is that I'm I'm going to finish a book on Jesus next year. And then after that, we'll, we'll see. Right. It's nice not to have your life planned out. That's way, you know, that way you get surprised and uh, it's mm. more fun that way. So I don't know. No, well, that, that's fair enough. But never the two, two proposed subjects. I mean, I, I, I've read a lot of biblical scholarship uh, over the years, and your work is. I, I don't. I don't want to intentionally flatter you because I, I know that's uncomfortable. But your your work is usually different because it is actually interesting to read <laughs> a lot a lot of stuff is interesting it's worthy and maybe necessary to you know another book on the synoptic problem but when you when you talk about the historical jesus or the, the scriptures or the early Christian, it is actually interesting and informative and one comes away feeling one's encountered uh, a, a thoughtful person who is erudite obviously but it is a beneficial experience and, and that's often not the case with biblical scholars bless them you don't always have that 
um, that skill. So again, I don't want to uh, embarrass you by saying that, but that's a very popular, very common response, I should say, from other biblical scholars who I've also read, who read reviews of your work. So you are unusual in that sense. So I do hope you write another book on Jesus, another one, I should say. I forget how many you've written now on Jesus, but that's fine. And a, and a sequel to uh, this book, Encountering Mystery, Religious Experience in a Secular Age. So um, do you have anything final you want to say, sir? Before no, we... just just that you're too kind, and I really will think about this. Okay, I really am thinking about a sequel. Excellent. Well, that's excellent. So, thank you very much indeed. Uh, again, to Professor Dale C. Allison, uh, American New Testament scholar from Princeton Theological Seminary uh, in the United States. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, I do uh, recommend uh, if you hadn't guessed, I do <laughs> recommend people uh, get hold of this copy. It's extremely readable and really illuminating about what's really going on in the world uh, that you wouldn't necessarily get from uh, understand from reading the usual mainstream news sources and it's all uh solid stuff so thank you very much indeed sir for your time thank you very much Take happy care. to talk everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.